Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, this week our show is mostly going to be about removal. Are you excited for this? As excited as I possibly could be about removal law, Josh. <laughs> so removal is when a case is in state court and it can be moved into federal court. Is that a, a good summary? Yes. And the vast majority of the time, removal is about civil cases getting moved from state court to federal court. And the typical reasons are either the case filed in state court asserts federal causes of action, which can allow it to be brought to federal court, or it has something what's called diversity, meaning all the plaintiffs are from a different state than all the defendants, and it alleges at least over $75,000 in damages. There's a statute that allows you then to bring it into federal court. But this week, of course, we have special circumstances. We're talking about removing criminal cases to federal court. And so there's a federal law allowing, in certain circumstances, criminal cases to be moved from state court to federal court. And the part of this law that we're concerned about here has to do with when you have a federal official who might be charged in a state court for a crime related to carrying out their federal duties. The idea was that the state court might be unfair to the federal employee or to the federal government or that the state might interfere with the federal government's prerogatives to make policy and conduct action in the states. And for that reason, there are certain cases where if you're, if you're going to try to try a federal employee, you're going to have to do it in federal court. It's not 100% clear what the original thinking on this was. Courts have looked at it and said that it's cloudy. There's a component of we want the federal government to be able to do its thing without being interfered with by the states. There's a component that uh, the feds won't be treated fairly in state court. And uh, some of the the classic areas of uh, controversy between the feds and the states, things like law enforcement and land use and things like that. The collection of excise taxes. Exactly. Whatever the original reason, there's this statute, 28 U.S.C. 1442, that says uh, that if there's a civil action or criminal prosecution in state court uh, that is against the United States or an officer of the United States acting under that office relating to an act they did under color of office or on account of a right they have under the office, then it can be removed to federal court. And this, of course, is now relevant because, as I concede, it's RICO. Uh, because <laughs> in the Georgia prosecution, Fulton County against uh, former President Donald Trump and 18 Confederates. This is a state action against a bunch of people, some of whom used to be federal government actors, and some of them are starting to remove it to federal court. I, I just want to be clear. It's not because it's a RICO charge specifically, right? These folks have been charged with a variety of offenses, some of the other offenses being components of what is supposed to have been the RICO conspiracy. And so this, you know, we, we've been critical of DA Fonnie Willis and some of the strategic choices that she has made here. But even if she hadn't charged RICO, if she had charged these folks with uh, forgery and and various other, you know, the various other underlying offenses that she did, there still would be this controversy over whether Donald Trump and Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark ought to be tried in federal court for the crimes they're accused of. Yes, I'm being facetious. It, whatever yep. the state crimes are that are charged, it's potentially removable if a federal court finds that you've met the requirements. And so I guess we should talk about those requirements because each of these defendants has separately moved. Has Trump moved already? Certainly Jeffrey Clark and Mark Meadows and then one guy who was nominated to be an elector. They've all moved for removal. Has Trump moved yet? Not as of last look. Right. So in order to have the case removed, one thing is that you have to have been a federal official, but that's not enough to require removal. What do they have to show in these motions in order to get the case heard in federal court instead of state court? So the requirements are that the removing party was an officer of the United States uh, when they did the thing they're being charged with that the lawsuit or prosecution against the person is for or relating to any act under color of such office, in other words, under the purported authority of that office. And finally, and crucially, uh, the officer has to have raised a colorable federal defense. 
Mm-hmm. And each word in that is important. Colorable doesn't mean absolute or clearly right. It just means plausible and and uh, having a chance of succeeding. And a federal defense means a defense under federal law, not just sort of like I didn't do it or a defense you could raise under state law. Okay. So I, I guess to, to start with that, under color of such office, we previously had this uh, arise in the Manhattan case, uh, which had to do with the hush payment to Stormy Daniels and whether uh, Trump complied with New York state law about business records in accounting for that payment to Stormy Daniels. Uh, and Trump tried and failed to get that case removed to federal court. And the issue there was basically uh, that making the hush payment to Stormy Daniels and whatever he did after the fact relating to that payment, those were not official acts. Those were not actions under the color of his authority as president. Right. Let me sort of give a lawyerly nuance. When you say fail to remove it to federal court, when you file this thing, it automatically goes to federal court, but then the court can kick it back. Okay. So Trump got it to federal court and the federal judge held an evidentiary hearing and a hearing before making a determination. But you're right. What the judge there determined was Trump's uh, request to remove failed on several levels. First, he didn't show that these machinations with payments uh, and bookkeeping related to the hush money to Stormy Daniels uh, was uh, relating to an act under color of office. And second, he said that Trump had not raised a colorable federal defense. Uh, Trump had raised two, argued two federal defenses. One was that he had absolute immunity and the judge said no because you know, paying porn stars uh, for hush money is not part of the presidential duties. He also said that the the whole case was preempted by federal election law, and the judge rejected that too. So uh, that was an example of how this process works. Uh, Trump filed the removal. It went to federal court. Uh, the federal judge held a hearing, heard evidence, and determined that Trump had failed to show that he was entitled to removal and sent it back. So – Aren't Trump and Meadows and Clark likely to be on stronger ground here than Trump would have been in that other case about the hush payments? I mean, in terms of whether the actions described here were official actions, a lot of what's at stake here is Trump and people around Trump lobbying state officials to take certain actions more broadly in effort to win a presidential election. Those seem like, you know, more core uh, within the office of the presidency, the president all the time interfaces with state governments and tries to get state governments to do things that, that he would like them to do. Um, and then in terms of whether he has a federal defense here, I assume he's going to raise certain First Amendment defenses. He's going to raise defenses that have to do uh, with the authority of the presidency that is granted in Article Two of the Constitution. Isn't he likely to clear both of those bars? I don't think it's that clear at all. OK, so I think you're right that, first of all, he's he and the other few people who were uh, actually appointed federal officials, uh, Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff, and Jeffrey Clark, who was a Department of Justice official, are going to be able to show that they were federal officers at the time. Um, they may be able to show a plausible case that the things they were doing uh, were related to or under color of their office. And to be clear about under color of the office, it doesn't have to mean that you actually had the legal authority to do what you were seeking to do, right? It's just that you were purporting to have that authority? Right. You were exercising power, purporting to under the power of your office. Right. So I think they run into trouble raising a colorable federal defense. Okay. Uh, and we don't yet have Trump's removal request um, as of the time we're taping this, uh, but we do have Mark Meadows brief. Uh, Mark Meadows not only filed his removal petition, he filed a motion to dismiss in federal court in Georgia. And that sort of out, uh, laid out what some of the arguments are going to be. He argued broadly that he's immune as a federal official. Uh, from state prosecution for things done in the course of his federal job. Um, but I think he overstates it, and I think he understates some of the limitations on that doctrine. So he cited law that says as long as what you're doing is within the scope of your authority and it must be uh, necessary and proper. Mm-hmm. And he treats that necessary and proper requirement as sort of a throwaway 
Well, it's necessary and proper for the chief of staff to advise the president and to interact with people on behalf of the president. But it's not really what the requirement is under the law. You have to show to show something's necessary and proper and therefore triggering immunity uh, that the person honestly and reasonably believe their actions were necessary and proper. And I think that for some of these actions, that's going to be a problem for these defendants uh, when when some of the actions incorporated false statements uh, and you know out, out and out lies about uh, what had happened, that they may struggle to do that. Of course, it really depends on how broadly a federal judge looks at this. If a federal judge looks at it at a very sort of surface level, just, well, you know, a, a chief of staff, uh, it's proper for them to interact with people, like you just said, uh, then you pass. If you do it at a greater level of specificity, it's not necessarily proper for a chief of staff to assist the president in lying to a state official, then you have it look at a different way. So, Part of the problem here is that there's just not a ton of law applying this in criminal cases. The questions you're going through there sound very fact intensive. They are. And so is the, is the federal court in deciding whether or not to have a trial in federal court when the federal judge has to consider these motions? Is he basically going to have to go through a lot of what you would go through at a trial? Is he going to have to evaluate whether various statements were false or true, for example? Well, yes, a, a federal judge can. So. What the judge does is if the judge doesn't find just on the papers that the removal is bogus, uh, the judge holds an evidentiary hearing and it says, make such disposition of the prosecution as justice shall require. So that gives the, the judge broad authority to do things like hold an evidentiary hearing and make decisions or even theoretically set the thing to be set for trial on disputed issues um, on federal defenses in federal court. And he can also dismiss the case. Yes. Uh, if a judge determines that the federal defenses uh, win, then the judge can dismiss the case. Okay. So one of the cases that, that shows how this works uh, is from about 2000 in the Ninth Circuit. It's Idaho versus Haruchi. And, and this is a somewhat infamous case arising out of the, uh, the federal siege at Ruby Ridge that you might remember. It was a, an incident that led to a lot of uh, anti-government extremist sentiment. It, it contributed to Timothy McVeigh's beliefs about the government. And it was an incident where uh, federal law enforcement trying to arrest somebody started a siege, killed some people. And then this uh, FBI a uh, sniper shot at a suspect and wound up hitting and killing the wife uh, who was unarmed of of the main suspect. And Idaho put him on trial for manslaughter. He removed it to federal court and they went through this and they ultimately dismissed the case, finding that everything he did was in the scope of his work. And he he um, objectively and subjectively thought it was necessary and proper to do the things that he did. So uh, it's it's kind of a big muddy mess in a way. You see it more often in civil cases than you do in criminal cases. There are remarkably few reported criminal cases showing how it works when those are removed to federal court. And so I guess to step back a second, you've laid out some reasons why it may be ultimately difficult in the end to convince a judge that the, that this case should be tried in federal court with respect to the defendants who are, who are seeking to have it moved there. Why would they even want to be in federal court in the first place? Well, a few reasons. First of all, they perceive that they're going to get a more fair hearing in federal court. So if you've got complex arguments based on um, legal precedent that have to be described at length in briefs, you generally want a federal judge looking at that. Um, state court procedures, on average, are more done live and verbally, particularly in criminal courts. Uh, you get far less written motion practice in state criminal courts than you do in federal courts. Uh, the federal judge is not uh, elected. They don't have to worry about getting uh, unseated the next time there's an election if they make a unpopular decision. And the perception is here. I, I think that in Fulton County, 
uh, Fonnie Willis is very popular and uh, Trump and his henchmen are unpopular. Uh, and these are complex uh, legal issues. And the perception is that a federal judge will handle them um, more fairly. I, I would say in general, uh, as a criminal defendant, you normally wouldn't be hoping for federal court. But if you're a criminal defendant who has complex legal defenses, you'd probably rather have those heard by a federal judge. And that's even though we know the identities of the judges who would hear these cases. I mean, the, the judge in Fulton County uh, is named Scott McAfee. He's 34 years old, by the way. He, he was a 2010 graduate of Emory University undergrad, two years behind my husband at Emory. That's just ridiculous. Uh, and so he's it's Fulton County, but he's an appointee of the Republican governor, Brian Kemp. Not not Donald Trump's favorite Republican in the world, but he is a Republican appointee. The federal judge, Steve Jones, is an appointee of President Obama. So he's getting, you know, he, the, the former president goes on about, you know, Obama judges, Obama judges. So this is this would move him from being in front of a, of a Republican appointee to being in front of a Democratic appointee, um, which you would think that they might be nervous about. That's true. Uh, the other thing that you might think about is that things tend to move more briskly in federal court than in state court. So if you wanted to make these complex defenses, um, make them an issue, it would be much more difficult to do in a prompt way. And it might be more difficult to get a court to confront them pre-trial in state court than it would in federal court where there's this specific procedure to have them heard immediately. So uh, these defendants can hope to have a federal judge confront these very quickly, like within a month, uh, whereas in state court, it's, it's anyone's guess when you'd be able to uh, get to do it. Can we talk about some of the other specifics in these uh, petitions for, for removal? We were expecting three, and we got three, but not the three we were expecting. We don't have Trumps yet. We do have one for David Schaefer, uh, who purported to be an elector for Donald Trump from the state of Georgia. Donald Trump, of course, lost the state of Georgia. There was an elector slate that went and voted in the Electoral College for Joe Biden, who won the state of Georgia. But David Schaefer's argument uh, is that, his, that the case should also be removed to federal court in his case because he was a federal official, because he was a contingent elector, as he describes it, from the state of Georgia, and that that makes him a federal official, and that even if he wasn't, he also contends that he was uh, acting uh, under the authority of a federal official, which is to say he was acting under the authority of Donald Trump, who urged him to go hold himself out as an elector and purport to vote to elect Donald Trump uh, as president, and that all of that makes him in some way or another attached to the federal government, and that's why his case, too, should be removed, which struck me as crazy. I mean, you know, if I go out and say I'm a congressman, does that mean I can, you know, insist that my case should be moved to federal court? Well, uh, at least he had some people holding him up to be an elector. So it's it's a uh, unlike me, unlike no one saying you're a congressman yet, Josh. Uh, so uh, it, it's certainly more of a stretch for him to get over that first hump of showing that he was a federal official. I, I think that it's questionable, but I don't think it. I, I think it's colorable, and I think he'll be able to take his shot. My sense of it is it may fail in the long run, but it, it gets him into federal court to make his arguments about it. He runs into then the same colorable federal defense issue that the other defendants would, though, right? Even if he is able to establish that he is some sort of federal official. Exactly. I mean, his yeah. strongest defense is probably uh, that it's a First Amendment issue. You know, he was saying what he thought. He was just asserting what he understood the situation to be, that type of thing. And um, but and therefore he was exercising his First Amendment rights. So I, I, I think that, though, to the extent they can show that he is joining an assertion that is false, making a false statement that he's going to run into trouble with that. But I mean, does that apply to, to a forgery offense? I mean, if I, you know, if I write a bad check on an account that I don't control and I say, well, I felt that I controlled the account and I had a First Amendment right to write on the check that I that I felt so, um, I assume that that would fail. Isn't isn't the elector petition substantially similar to that? You're really raining on this guy's parade today, uh, Josh. <laughs> uh, yeah. So obviously the trick is n not all false statements are outside the scope of the First Amendment. OK, right. 
Some false statements are protected speech. Sometimes they're related to politics. But there's a large number of fraudulent and false statements that are particularly related to trying to get something that are connected to established laws like perjury or fraud or things like that that are not protected. So the question is whether he can try to do a spin that all of his are just political puffery or political assertions as opposed to specific false statements in a criminal context. Mm -hmm. And then what about Jeffrey Clark? He was the acting head of the civil division at the Department of Justice. Uh, he'd been an environmental lawyer. It was one of these situations where like half the top staff of DOJ had left by the time the election was rolling around and you really had the C team running certain stuff. Uh, and you, in one of these uh, White House meetings, you had Jeffrey Rosen, who was the, the acting deputy attorney general, uh, saying, you know, well, you're an environmental lawyer. Why don't you go make an environmental regulation? Yeah, we'll call you if there's an oil spill. I think <laughs> right. exactly. yes, yes, that was the line. Um, so he has some especially creative theories about why his case should be removed, right? It's not just about why his case should be removed. It's about what should happen. So normally when you remove a civil case, that halts everything in the state court. It's done unless it gets sent back there. With a criminal case, if you remove the criminal case, uh, then the state prosecution can proceed. They just can't convict you. They can't enter a judgment of conviction. This prevents you from constantly derailing criminal cases by taking it to federal court. They can still proceed. You're just protected from a final judgment. What uh, Jeffrey Clark does is um, he purports to remove not just the criminal prosecution, but the underlying grand jury investigation. And then what he says is, okay, I'm removing both of these. The grand jury proceeding is quasi-civil, and so this is a hybrid, and therefore it should halt everything, including the criminal case, in the state court. Uh, it, it's an assertion completely without any support. Uh, it, it's an assertion that flies in the face of uh, a lot of law that limits federal courts from interfering with state criminal prosecutions, uh, an mm -hmm. abstention doctrine. Uh, but, I mean, it's creative uh, and very aggressive. <laughs> I really don't see, particularly not uh, you know, only the most partisan Trump judge I could see agreeing with a theory like this. Um, but, you know, he's taken his shot. He, he sees what he wants to do, which is not just to get a hearing in federal court, but to shut down the state case. And he, he's taken a shot. And so can we talk about what all of this is likely to mean procedurally for the Georgia case? One thing we've talked about is what a mess this is likely to be. 19 defendants all tried in one trial. We've talked about how similarly complex Georgia RICO cases can take years to come to trial. You have won the Young Thug case where they've been in jury selection for eight months because it's so difficult putting together a jury that will hear this case that will also go on for months and months, uh, which presumably this would also be an extremely long trial. Uh, so you have some of the defendants seeking to have their cases removed to federal court. Um, Georgia can proceed while that is ongoing. And so I guess my first question is, you think all of the removal efforts are going to fail ultimately? Or the, I guess the, the better way to describe it is the federal court will ultimately kick all of these back to the state court. And sooner or later, Georgia will be able to proceed with that 19 defendants, one case approach if they wish. Well, first of all, Georgia can proceed right now. So because the doctrine is that if you remove a state criminal case, the state criminal case can keep going. They just can't enter a final judgment against you. So mm -hmm. the criminal case will keep going unless the federal court accepts Jeff Clark's loony theory, mm -hmm. and I don't think it will. Um, will the, the federal judge reject all of these? I'm not sure. I think that some of the theories are a somewhat close call. I think it's more likely than not that they'll all be rejected and all sent back to Georgia. Uh, but it's, first of all, not a sure thing that that's what will happen. And second of all, I don't know what the 11th Circuit will do when that gets appealed. So um, I could see more likely the 11th Circuit, uh, which has some more 
uh, judges friendly to Trump and, and to conservative issues, I could see it more likely them taking action than this particular judge uh, who's hearing it now. Although I, I, it's worth remembering that Trump's own 11th Circuit appointees were not availing for him when Judge Eileen Cannon was being very creative on his behalf when he was seeking the return of the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. He got some very creative theories approved by Judge Cannon that it was slapped down by Naomi Rao and another one of his appointees in the 11th Circuit. Sure. But I think that was a lot clearer call. What uh, Judge Cannon was doing was very clearly completely outside settled law. Here, uh, you kind of got a wide open field in some ways. Um, there's a lot of things that there just aren't precedents for this uh, very clearly. There, there's some colorable issues about the line between uh, making fraudulent statements to a government entity and political activity. Uh, I'm not saying they should prevail. I don't think they should. I think by far the better argument is that the arguments are meritless. But I'm not 100% confident they're going to lose on this effort. Mm -hmm. And so then in terms of what's likely to take longer, if you're going to have appeals to the 11th Circuit and maybe even to the Supreme Court on some of these issues, I assume? Yes. So that could take years it could, but remember, it doesn't really matter with respect to the criminal prosecution. Well, but so what, what I was going to say is that it could also take years to get to the criminal prosecution in Georgia because of the other complications that we've discussed previously. Exactly. And so I guess my question is, what's likely to be resolved first? Is it is it likely that we would have a trial of Donald Trump in Georgia that a federal court would later say, I guess, they, they set it aside if they ultimately decide that the, the case had to be heard in federal court? Well, if the removal is still in federal court, then I suppose um, what you would say is that the final judgment of conviction against Trump, if he's convicted at trial in Georgia, can't be entered, and it's kind of in suspense. But I, I, I think that likely uh, you would wind up getting, you would certainly get a, a trial court decision in federal court. You'd get that before, well before Trump goes to trial in Georgia. And I think you'd probably even get a court of appeals decision before that because they'll do it on an accelerated uh, docket because of the issues involved. So I, I, I kind of suspect we won't wind up in a situation where they can't enter a conviction against Trump if they get one. Okay, so this, this will likely be resolved before trial. I think so. Let's talk about some other Mark Meadows news besides his, his efforts to get this case removed to federal court and dismissed. Uh, we also know that uh, there was an early draft of his ghostwritten memoir of his, his time in politics uh, that uh, suggested that former President Trump had left a, a, some sort of war plan on a couch in Bedminster, which has been you know, one of the disputed facts about Donald Trump's handling of classified documents or, or marked classified documents after leaving office, this idea of did, did he in fact brandish this Iran war plan in this meeting with Mark Meadows' ghostwriters at Bedminster. Uh, now it seems that there was a, at least a draft of the book that said he had to, that he'd had that plan laying out on a couch. Right. So what we hear is that a draft of Meadows' book said that he heard from the ghostwriter and a publicist that Trump had left this top secret Iran war plan on a couch at Bedminster. Mm -hmm. And I mean, first of all, in terms of security levels, couch at Bedminster, bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, I think you've got roughly <laughs> equivalent uh, security protocols here. Um, so I, I don't think this is such a big deal. He told this to Jack Smith. It's clear. I mean, it's hearsay. He's hearing it from other people. They'd have to develop it from the people who who saw it in order to make it admissible evidence. And it's probably cumulative at this point. I mean, they, they've already charged Trump with eventual possession of the document uh, right. in Florida. Um, I don't think they are going, even though there's all this wish casting out there, oh, you should charge him in New Jersey too so that you get a better judge. They're not going to do that. Um, it, that would just be pointlessly piling on. So it's just kind of another point of corroboration that I'm sure they can use as evidence. So they can use that for part of the chain to say, you know, first he possessed it in Bedminster and then he must have decided to take it with him down to Florida because it shows up there. That helps to shore up the what he did and, and his intent on it. 
Is this the sort of thing that could matter at sentencing? Uh, one of the one of the defenses, not necessarily a legal defense, but one of the things that we have heard uh, on behalf of the former president is, you know, look, yes, he had these documents, but they were they were stored at Mar-a-Lago, which is protected by the United States Secret Service. And, you know, they, you know, it's it's just like Joe Biden's garage or Mike Pence's basement or whatever. You know, sometimes federal officials have some of these things. But if they're just sitting in a storage room, even if that storage room is a bathroom, that's not that great a risk to national security. It's the sort of incidental thing that has happened before. And so if this shows that, no, he, you know, he didn't just have the documents. It wasn't just his boxes, but that he was taking them between his various residences, that he was, he was having them laid out in meetings that he was having with people who did not have security clearances. Yes. It demonstrates a, 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 his behavior in handling the documents that seems more problematic from the perspective of the purpose of the Espionage Act. He was doing things that actually created greater risk that the documents would get out. Yeah, I I think it goes strongly to his intent uh, and state of mind, but certainly also it's a reason why at sentencing you tell the judge not to be too easy on him because it was clear this was especially flagrant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we also uh, saw news reporting about Rudy Giuliani going to Donald Trump to beg for money, basically, that uh, we've talked a number of times recently about Rudy Giuliani's weird efforts to avoid uh, discovery in in this uh, defamation lawsuit that's been brought against him by these two Georgia election workers, where he's trying to make some sort of stipulation that would allow him to avoid producing lots of documents to settle fact questions in the case. Um, And we've learned a little more about why that might be, that he went to Trump saying basically that the cost of this legal defense is ruining him um, and asked Trump to pay various bills. And Trump declined, except that Trump did pay a bill to some service provider that looks like it was for some sort of e-discovery services. And it was a big bill. It was for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, And so it, it, it sounds like one thing we're learning here is that Rudy has actually been incurring quite large expenses related to his discovery obligations in one or more of these cases to a point where it's, you know, it's really an amount of money that is a problem for him. Yeah. So e-discovery for people who aren't familiar is the the concept that in modern cases you have to produce not just, you know, a, a pile of documents on your desk, but all the documents on your computer, huge numbers of emails and files and things like that. It's incredibly time consuming. It's very typical to use services that process and mark and store and categorize all this stuff. And those can get super expensive, particularly when you have a very high volume of electronic documents, as you do in these types of cases. And they can get ruinously expensive pretty quickly if you're producing and processing tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of documents. So it's not surprising that he would have big legal bills. It's a little surprising that he thought he could get Donald Trump to care or to think that Trump would be sympathetic or pay any of his legal bills. I mean, Trump seems like the guy you know is going to say no to most of it, maybe pay a pittance or something like that, but, but do exactly what he did because Trump very much is against all the conventional wisdom about how you treat your (laughs) co-conspirators. So normally, you know, you want to treat them well. You want to keep them close to you. You don't want them to get mad at you. You don't want them to get them to go cooperate with the government. That's why in a lot of these situations you see, you know, the higher ups paying for the legal defense of the lower people. So you can kind of control their defense. Uh, You can have a Uh, You can have a say in what they decide, and they're more likely to be happy with you because they think you'll stop paying for the defense if, if you cooperate. Trump just doesn't give a shit about any of that. Well, don't we have a sense that that is happening in at least some of the cases here? I mean, the the effort to ha- that federal prosecutors have made to have uh, some sort of determination about a conflict of interest with Walt Nauta's lawyer has to do with the fact that that lawyer has represented several people, including a cooperating witness who is no longer represented by that lawyer. It sort of looks like that's that guy's the lawyer who's sort of, you know, in the Trump camp. And some of these really low-level people, the sort of valet-type people at Mar-a-Lago, uh, they do have that representation. I, I, I guess we don't, we don't know for sure that Trump or, or an entity associated with Trump is paying those legal bills, but I, I suspect they are. Well, it looks like very low-level people that's happening for. And it's not clear if it's at Trump's direction or whether various Republican entities are doing it. So there's a lot of PACs out there and there's been a lot of grumbling about how uh, donated money is being used for legal defenses. It's not clear who's making those decisions. And it may be that the 
the donors and the people who control the money are making the decisions, even though Trump is not smart enough to make the decision himself. I mean, you have the campaign and you have these these closely affiliated packs to Donald Trump. This sure. isn't some like fully third party thing. Right. I, I guess my question is if he's viewing Rudy Giuliani differently than these, you know, people who like literally work on the grounds at Mar-a-Lago. Is it because Rudy would not be a useful witness if he were to cooperate against Donald Trump? I mean, how would the government use Rudy even if Rudy came to them and was like, I want to flip on on Trump? He's so I mean, he, he seems like he's drunk all the time. Yeah. Uh, Rudy would be a, a horrifically bad witness. However, Rudy would be a treasure trove of information. Uh, Rudy could point you to, you know, what actually happened, give you leads that you would chase, explain the context of communications, tell you where to look for things, tell you who might have evidence or documents or information. So that's what you'd use Rudy for. Yeah, the, the last thing you'd want to use Rudy for is to put him on the stand and, and be Rudy in front of a jury. That would be horrific. There's one thing I've been wondering as I've been thinking about the prospect of more of these co-conspirators possibly cooperating in one way or another, which is that you have these separate prosecutions and many of them are involved in more than one of them. I mean, Mark Meadows, for example, we're talking about a reason that he's likely to be a witness in the documents case, but he's also a co-defendant of the former president in the Georgia case. And there may be more indictments that come down in Jack Smith's federal case related to January 6th uh, that could pick up some of the same people who have been charged in Georgia. If I were Jeffrey Clark, for example, I would be very concerned about the possibility of, of catching a federal charge in addition to the Georgia state charges. And so if you're a federal prosecutor and you're talking to Mark Meadows, I assume you can't offer immunity in the Georgia case, right? No. Uh, federal prosecutor can't uh, offer immunity there in a state prosecution. You might be able to negotiate uh, something with uh, Fonnie Willis or to to get some sort of deal where you resolve the Georgia case and the federal case and, and get immunity, but you can't unilaterally end a state prosecution. Do you think there's an open communication channel like that between Jack Smith and, and Fonnie Willis? I assume that Jack Smith would have preferred that none of these charges be brought at all in Georgia. I, I'm sure there's a communications channel. Uh, I think it's probably fairly guarded. You start off with the, the idea that, you know, the feds and the state often have a somewhat fraught relationship uh, characterized by sort of arrogance on the federal side and, and resentment on the state side. Um, they have <laughs> different uh, different goals. Uh, they're very differently situated in terms of an elected DA and uh, appointed special counsel. Uh, and traditionally, they're they're fighting over attention and fighting over resources and and things like that. So, I I would be surprised to really see a hand in hand type of approach here. Finally, let's talk some about Hunter Biden. There's been a couple of big stories in The New York Times adding more color to the process that led to the implosion of the plea deal that was supposed to resolve Hunter Biden's legal difficulties, at least those related to nonpayment of taxes and possession of a firearm. One of the things that we learn in these stories is that the original version of the plea deal, which was being negotiated by an, an, an underling of, of David Weiss, the, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, would have been more lenient uh, than the one that Hunter was ultimately trying to plead to, where there there wouldn't have been a guilty plea on the tax charges. All they would have done was diversion on the gun charge. And there's also a timeline of events in here that causes both Hunter Biden's attorneys and Republicans in Congress to believe that Republican congressional efforts having to do with those IRS whistleblowers diverted the course of this prosecution, that basically that the, they got a more stringent agreement. And then presumably also that uh, that public attention made it difficult for DOJ to cut a new deal uh, with more specificity, with a, a broader scope of immunity from further prosecution, which is what Hunter's attorneys were demanding in order to actually settle this case in Delaware. So basically, the, the, the upshot of this article seems to be that political efforts to derail that plea that, that they worked. Yes. So it, it sounds as if the original deal was straight up diversion uh, on the gun charge 
and the tax charges. You're going to repay all taxes you owe for th- these two years. You're not going to get charged with anything so long as you successfully complete this period of time. Uh, DOJ gets cold feet. They say it's now you have to plead to the tax charges. Uh, Biden's lawyers say fine. They're still focused on the language uh, that's going to give him immunity from any other prosecutions arising from this array of facts. And that then, you know, everything falls apart in the hearing. Josh, here's what I still have a lot of problem with here. This is closer to, to what I thought had happened, uh, leaving out the effective um, GOP derailing of it. Um, this portrays them as thinking that that agreement that went to court protected him reliably from charges in other areas. I, I still think them, it, them being Hunter Biden's attorneys believe yes, that Hunter Biden's yeah. attorneys believed under this version of events that that plea agreement reliably protected him from any prosecutions related to his non-tax activities, yeah, Foreign Agent Registration Act, whatever. I still thought it was awfully vague and not reliable. Um, so that just surprises me, and that strikes me as sort of a, a miscalculation um, well, all around. If if that's in fact what they what they thought in their heart of hearts, I mean, one thing that looks pretty clear from this news coverage is that Hunter Biden, people close to Hunter Biden, whether it's attorneys or, or people with, otherwise with knowledge of what his attorneys were up to, look to be sources for these stories. Yes, and I assume they intend to argue in court that that was their understanding of the agreement. Um, and in fact, this is this this strange thing where Christopher Clark, as attorney who had negotiated that agreement, withdrew his counsel, and the idea is is he's going to be a witness. Um, in some sort of uh, hearing related to this case, which is why he says he can't be the attorney. I assume they intend to argue there that they had a binding agreement with the federal government that was going to immunize him in that manner. So they have to they have to purport to believe that. That's what he's been saying. And Christopher Clark has asked to withdraw his counsel. Uh, There is a rule, there's a witness advocate rule that says that without your client's informed consent, you shouldn't represent the client if you're going to have to be a witness at trial. Now, there's no scenario where Christopher Clark would be a witness at trial. This would all be done in pretrial hearings. So this isn't mandatory, what he's asking to do. It's more prudential. Uh, he's saying, oh, it's going to be, you know, I'm going to be at the heart of this, so I don't want to be his lawyer anymore. So, yeah, the, the telegraph here is that if Department of Justice is going to try to up the stakes and maybe bring harsher charges, then um, the Hunter Biden team is going to say, actually, we had a binding deal and you backed out of it. And our interpretation of it was the correct interpretation. Uh, Is that likely to fly? I don't think so. I mean, it's going to be a huge mess no matter what. They have going for them the doctrine that ambiguity in a plea agreement is generally resolved against the government. Uh, but at some point, you just don't have a meeting of the minds about what was in an agreement. Right. Well, but it's also, I mean, the government didn't pull out of the deal. The The judge rejected the deal, right. said she felt the deal was too vague, and then the government declined to make a new deal that would have had to have had different language. So I don't, I don't understand how it can be the case that the government pulled out. Well, it, it's not clear that the government did pull out. The, the government stated its understanding of the deal, which was that it did not immunize Hunter Biden for anything other than the tax charges and the gun charge that's stated in the agreement. And um, then there was some back and forth, and the judge basically said, I want you to go back and clarify and work on this. So yes, uh, the I guess what Hunter Biden has to do is not only enforce the deal, but enforce his understanding of the deal, his interpretation of it. Uh, I do think that's an uphill battle. Yeah. There's something that that sticks in my craw about the argument that's being advanced by Hunter Biden's side here as a, as a layperson who has never practiced tax law or been indicted for a tax-related crime, um, which is their argument is basically that the, that the original deal where he would not have had to plead to anything was the fair uh, resolution that, in fact, even having him plead to misdemeanors treated him differently than si- similarly situated defendants. And they apparently pointed to Roger Stone, who also had big tax problems of his own, which were resolved in a purely civil process, and that that's what Hunter should have gotten here, too. And I just I find crazy the idea that if you simply don't pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes that you owe and don't file tax returns related to those, the idea that it would be weird for the government to charge you with a crime for that just just strikes me as bizarre. 
Well, the vast number of cases are resolved through administrative proceedings. The government doesn't have the resources to resolve the vast number of these cases through criminal proceedings. So it's it's true that relatively few situations like this are resolved with criminal charges. That's not a, a statement of whether or not they merit them. It's just a statement of the way it actually works. Well, but I mean, most people who speed on the freeway, most of the time when people speed on the freeway, they don't get tickets for it. That doesn't mean it's unfair if I get pulled over for speeding and have a ticket written to me. Right. But I guess the difference is that the government knows on some level about uh, a vast number of situations of unpaid taxes, and it makes choices about which of those two push along for criminal prosecution instead of for administrative processing. And the question is, who does it choose? So to use your analogy, it's more like if the government pulled over 100 people who are speeding and ticket two of them and and wave the rest along. So um, that's kind of what he's talking about, is that getting prosecuted for this is extremely rare just because of how many cases there are and how few the government can take criminally. Wouldn't there be a good reason, especially to prosecute someone like him because he's so high profile? It demonstrates that there are consequences if you don't pay your taxes. Yes. And uh, it's my understanding and it's it's, uh, the understanding of a couple of other ex-AUSAs I've talked to that somewhere there is a policy that says specifically that the high profile of the defendant is a factor in deciding whether or not to bring charges for the deterrent value. Haven't been able to track it down, but I've had Mm -hmm. two other people say, yeah, I remember that too. We just can't find it. And then the other thing that stuck out to me as remarkable here is that one of the arguments that that attorney Christopher Clark made uh, in trying to convince the federal government not to bring any charges, even misdemeanor tax charges against Hunter Biden, was that if they went to trial, that Hunter would have to call Joe Biden as a witness for the defense and that this would cause a constitutional crisis because the president ultimately oversees the Department of Justice, which is prosecuting this case. And This makes me angry as a political supporter of Joe Biden because they are once again using the president as a prop to try to clean up the actions of his son. But also, I mean, if there was a a reason that the government might call Joe Biden as a witness, and I don't don't know what that would be, then you could say, you know, well, this is setting up a constitutional crisis. But it it is entirely within the choice of Hunter Biden and his attorneys whether or not to try to call Joe Biden. And the idea that you would further embroil your father in this political controversy that you made with all of your shitty behavior, it just offends me. And it also, I don't even, I don't even see what they would call Joe Biden about. Well, they they wouldn't. Uh, So, yeah, it's a super aggressive move. And I think it can be consumed less as a statement. We will literally call Joe Biden at trial because I think they know a judge wouldn't let them. And more that will make this a huge political issue for Joe Biden if you do this. Because the thing is, you, you can't just call the president because you feel like it, uh, because he's the head of the, the federal law enforcement. Uh, almost certainly any federal judge would say, you have to show me how this is specifically directly connected to the defense before I'm going to let you call the president of the United States. And the almost certainly the answer would be, no, you can't do that. But I think what the threat shows is just shows we're going to make this a huge liability for Joe Biden they're basically looking for political juice here. But I mean, that's a crazy thing to do to your father. Yeah. But I mean, the guy is, uh, let's face it, the guy is a, a lifelong addict and bad actor who's in a desperate situation. And his attorneys are not thinking about what's good uh, for Joe Biden or what makes a good son. They're thinking, how can I get my guy out of the situation as cleanly as possible, which is what defense attorneys are supposed to do. Sometimes, I mean, uh, sometimes representing people involves distasteful exercises of leverage. But I mean, how desperate is the situation? I'm Because it sort of seems to me like you could have had a disposition of this where Hunter was going to do some amount of time, which I assume would not have been a tremendously large amount of time for these sorts of tax crimes, even if he had pled to a felony charge here, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't we be talking about months? That's right. 
I think the desperate thing in their mind is the prospect of Trump winning and then a Trump Justice Department bringing other charges, bigger charges, not just because of whether he'd be convicted, but because of the overwhelming effect of being pursued by the Trump Justice Department. So I think the desperation is the one reflected in how the deal fell apart, is that he was desperate to get something that would basically say, okay, um, this is it. No more charges ever based on things in the past. No, no, no more bringing up old shit, even if Trump mm-hmm. gets elected. I think that is the desperate factor. Before we go, let's talk about the bail in Georgia. So all the, you know, the, the defendants in the Georgia case uh, were given until August 25th, Friday of this week, to surrender themselves in Georgia. And while Trump has gotten released on his recognizance in the federal cases, he actually has to post $200,000 of bail in Georgia? Yes. Uh, so they've agreed to bail in advance. Uh, and in in the states, often it's calculated based on some chart uh, that looks at what the charges are and how much, uh, you know, you pay for each one. And that's how Eastman's getting out in 100000 and 200000 for Trump. Um, and so they can pay it in cash. They can have a bail bondsman put it up. They can put up a percentage through a program with the jail. The one that's interesting, the only thing that's really particularly interesting out of these is that uh, Trump's conditions of release has a bunch of special language saying that he can't make a direct or indirect threat against any co-defendant or witness or victim or sort of the community at large. <laughs> so uh, it, it'll, including on social media, social media specifically called out. So it will be interesting to see. Uh, how aggressive Fonnie Willis is on trying to enforce that, because I think it is likely, if not certain, that Trump will continue talking trash about people who will include co-defendants, witnesses, so forth. And uh, Fonnie Willis seems like somebody who is willing to go in and make it an issue. Uh, she doesn't seem to be adverse to rewarding Trump's wish for direct confrontation over issues like this. When she says direct or indirect threat, is that based on the true threat standard that you would see in a, in a you know in a criminal case about making threats? Does it have to be like I'm going to come to your house and shoot you? Well, the better interpretation of the law is probably that to be constitutional, a limit like this would have to be limited to true threats. However, it's a very poorly developed area of law. And so it's not 100% clear because usually it just doesn't get litigated and doesn't get appealed. So I think there's some ambiguity there in the way a court is likely to approach it, which could lead to First Amendment litigation. Mm -hmm. Because I assume Jack Smith is going to be very reluctant to try to seek pretrial detention of the, of the former president for a variety of reasons, yes. including that, you know, it, you know, he ultimately reports to Donald Trump's opponent in the next presidential election and the optics of trying to jail your opponent in a presidential election before he's been convicted of anything are horrible. Fonnie Willis has, you know, no such chain of command issue. When you say how, you know, how stringent she's going to try to be about this, would that be about ultimately trying to have the president, the former president held in jail? Absolutely. Uh, I I think that she wants to do this in a way that, uh, let's say, in a way that maximizes the deterrence value. So I could see her being very aggressive about seeking revocation of his bail based on what he does on social media and relishing the fight over that in a way that Jack Smith will want to avoid. I think Jack Smith uh, is likely to continue to be reluctant to pick fights or get into fights that that aid Trump uh, in a public relations sense. Uh, My sense is Fonnie Willis is, is less reluctant to get into that type of fight and might actually relish those fights. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. Oh, yeah. Let's leave it there for this week. Ken, thank you so much, as always, for speaking with me. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time.